Hello, and welcome to another episode of Body Liberation for All. I'm your host and decolonized wellness and body image coach, Dahlia Kinsey. I help queer folks of color heal their struggles with shame and self-acceptance through nutrition and self-care so they can live the most fierce, liberated, and joyful version of their lives. This week, I have fitness trainer and yogi on the show, Sarah Merrifield. While you may think this wouldn't be a fit because typically people working in this space are not intersectional and are intentionally or unintentionally reinforcing and upholding systems that rank some bodies as more valuable than others, Sarah is totally distinct from what you typically find in this space. Sarah is fiercely intersectional and committed to sharing fitness with people in a way that is liberatory and not oppressive. This was an excellent conversation and has happened well before recent events, but it's so timely to release it right now after we've had this national display of white supremacy and white privilege, and we're already seeing people denying the absolutely obvious racial implication. It's so refreshing to hear from someone with white skin invested in intersectionality and invested in centering the most vulnerable rather than focusing on her marginalized identities and the oppression that she is experiencing. Sarah makes so many wonderful points in this interview. Let's get right into it. When a box, tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited for my queer folk, my trans, people of color. Let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. When I saw your queer yogi group, I was really excited because I hadn't seen anything like that really in my area. And I was fascinated by the concept that you'd created a space specifically for queer people who love or practice or teach yoga. What was the process behind you deciding to create that space and how you initially became interested in yoga yourself and how you use it these days? I started practicing yoga um, when I was in high school and it was just something that so many people were into. It was all the rage at the time and it still is, but was really kicking off, I guess, with young people then. And I just like challenged myself to do it. So I found a really great um, teacher on YouTube that I ended up doing that 30 day challenge with her and following through at the end of the challenge, I was able to practice on my own which is really an emotional journey, being able to go from being guided by someone to feeling confident enough to be on your own. And ever since then, probably seven or eight years now, it's been a part of my life every single day. And then I've been teaching for five years and that transition was really natural as well. When I was in college, I just, I went to a lot of fitness classes and I had the opportunity to teach some classes myself. So I took that on, um, and then once I graduated college, when I was in college, I had a little group of people that would always come to my classes and had a nice little community. But when I graduated, I lost all of that. And I really don't care 
as much about trying to make money from yoga because it's not the most profitable thing. And it's a very spiritual, meaningful thing to me that I said, I just want people to do yoga with and I will teach them for free. And I really know a lot of people that have been left out from like the mainstream yoga spaces and movement that it's just very white, skinny, able-bodied and presumably straight and cis and all of those things. Um, And I've had experience being in those spaces in Metro Detroit. And I finally found my home with one Kundalini teacher who I love, but been to a lot of studios where the environment is so unwelcoming and I don't even have that many marginalized identities. So I just couldn't imagine how it is for other people, people of color. And I've heard a lot of bad things. So I said, I wanted to create that space for people in Detroit because Detroit is very gentrified and it's very exclusive community for yoga and those high end type activities when I really don't feel it should be a luxury type activity. Wanted to offer it for free. So it was accessible. I was able to connect with a couple of people in the community that have intentional living spaces and host it with them and got off the ground with some social groups and trying to connect with people. And yeah, it's basically where it started. I really wanted to engage people that I feel like are really left out. And the response was great in terms of the attendance. It didn't really reflect as much as the online excitement. But I think that's pretty typical. of. I think with everything, people love to RSVP, but then they really decide the minute before it's time to go out the door. Yeah. And I had people show up halfway in the class and I was like, you know what? It's not a studio. I'm not getting paid. It's fine. And plus I've really learned if you really want to be inclusive, you have to be inclusive of everyone's situation. So maybe someone doesn't have a car and they had to Uber or like people would ask for rides and, or maybe someone is not as able-bodied. So it took them longer to get there. That's something I really critique about yoga and fitness spaces that they're very like on the dot, like everything is done a certain way and I'm not that type of person. So I really want to now and in the future create that space where we're very open and accommodating to people and understanding that life happens and you should still be able to get a yoga practice in. Because I know how empowering and life-changing it's been for me. And I really want other people to access that instead of writing off yoga forever because they had one unwelcoming experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely needed. I live near Atlanta. I say near Atlanta, but almost an hour away. And the only studio I ever found, it isn't even really a studio. It's like a legit ashram. It is incredibly welcoming, but trying to get there through traffic after work. The day that I gave up on it was when it should have taken me 45 minutes and it took two hours and I completely missed the class. I was like, I'm done. But I have thought that learning remotely wasn't as good because when you have a teacher, my understanding was they'll adjust your posture so that you don't get hurt. Or now that you've gone from studying on your own to being an instructor, How do you feel now about self-study or about people doing yoga from home? I think it's great. I think in terms of the yoga teacher training, there's a lot of virtual ones that are really cheap. I did mine in person in the community where I went to school. And that was a really good experience because I did get that hands-on learning experience. The yoga world isn't really regulated. So there are people out there teaching that don't have certifications and... 
there's people all making making all sorts of claims about you know what they offer that aren't actually true and even the 200 hours that I did in some cases isn't really enough you know I don't know everything about people with all different medical conditions and the elderly and pregnant people and things like that but in terms of practicing at home I think it's really that next level of practice because I think a lot of people I was that way that I really enjoyed being guided by people but I really was taught even in my yoga training that it's really when you go home and you do it and it's really just coming from your own intuition. It's a very intuitive thing to me that it's like what I need in this moment. And that's why I really appreciate it because it doesn't have the stress and pressure that I sometimes associate with working out because it's, to me, it's not a workout. It's a really spiritual, emotional thing. I know some people do it to try to, you know, get better ads and things like that, which is all valid. But to me, and you know, the real historical and cultural meaning of it is for spirituality. And that's how I take it. In terms of the virtual, I've been going to a Kundalini teacher um, here in Metro Detroit for a year. And then when the pandemic happened, we had to go virtual. And that was such a challenge because especially Kundalini, if people don't know what it is, it's supposed to be the mother of all yoga. So it's a lot of chanting. It's a lot of, you're doing the same pose for three to seven minutes straight. And it takes a lot of mental willpower and determination. And it's really hard. And so I had to really build up to doing it and not getting frustrated. And that's the whole like mental challenge type thing that is really, really good for you. And you really see growth. But going from doing that in the studio, that's so focused and I can't do anything else because the teacher is watching me and it was always very small, intimate classes to doing it in my bedroom where she doesn't know what I'm doing. Like I could just walk away from the screen and, you know, sometimes I don't even have my video turned on and that was a real challenge. But I think home practice is viable for everyone. It's a great option. It should be offered everywhere because like I said before, it's more accessible. Um, oftentimes because you don't have to rent the space, it can be a cheaper option. So same with like personal training, you know, it can be a more affordable option for people, easier people work or people have difficulties with transportation, everything. So it definitely takes a lot of focus and determination to cultivate that, but it's consistency. Like I had to do it every day and now if I don't do it, I feel off. So it really, Mm -hmm. it's just, you got to cultivate it. A lot of people struggle because they just don't push to that point where it does feel natural and it like they crave it. So that really helps that reframe because I guess with so many things that have been co-opted by Western culture, we like to always act as though you need to go through someone to access things and the concept of it being intuitive or something that you can do at home. That really is never been presented to me it's always like oh you need you need a guy you need some some help like don't do this on your own you'll get hurt uh yeah I mean there is definitely a benefit of having someone that has years of experience possibly and I don't do hands-on adjustments because I personally am not comfortable and a lot of people aren't comfortable with being touched but some teachers do that um in terms of just verbal adjustments and things like that, that can be very helpful. But I don't think that you need a teacher. Some people want one. The original yogis were people that lived in caves and meditated 
for most of the day and really lived a yogic lifestyle. And that's really, to me, what yogi means. I know I'm in an appropriated space. And so I'm really um, careful with how I kind of talk about my place in yoga. And I can say what it means to me personally, but I'm not going to act like me being a white yoga teacher is anything revolutionary. Just that I happened upon it. It really, I think, can benefit everyone's lives. But I'm really more of just the like we say, like, I'm a guide. I'm not like your teacher. I'm just guiding you to what is already inside of you. And that's my my spiritual belief system because I'm Buddhist. And it's really about, like, everything you need is already inside of you. You just probably need someone to be like, hey, like, it's in there. And it really takes practice. Like, intuition is supposed to be natural. But I think we're all taught to really ignore who we really are and what we really need that for me this year, I've been really practicing intuition and like, okay, your body and your mind and your spirit told you something and you ignored it. And now you face the consequences. So now, you know, Mm. and it's really sad that we're so disconnected from that. But I think yoga to me, it's all about what do you need in this present moment? And yoga can be just laying in child's pose for an hour or laying on your back. It doesn't have to look any certain way. And so that's what I really want to show people is that everyone is welcome whether you just want to lay there, that's yoga. If you're benefiting spiritually, mentally, and physically, that's yoga. So I don't think there's, you know, one definition. I think it's whatever you need. I like that framing. How has you getting in touch with your intuition? What does that look like? What are you doing to help facilitate that? Yeah, it's really hard (laughs) when you're coming from such a space of, I'm such a productivity person that I, you know, like how our culture is, I always want to be doing something and often overdo it. And so really this year, since the pandemic has really shut down a lot of things, I've had this time to really be introspective and journal and do a lot of reading and a lot of just self-improvement and realizing that I had made a lot of mistakes because I didn't listen to myself. And that's on me, you know, holding yourself accountable for how your life has turned out, because I think a lot of us do ignore our best interest. Um, So it's a lot of reflecting on what's happened in the past year before this pandemic. And like I said, journaling, reading, I have tarot cards, I do that kind of helps me reflect on what I already knew. Like, I think it always affirms what I already knew, but it's like a good affirmation. And then meditation, chanting, those things to me are really integral. I do them every day because it, I don't know, puts me in the place I need to be in because I think we all can just wake up, hit the ground and running and just do a million things. But if you don't take that time to pause and settle, then you may just be doing things on autopilot, which is how I've been doing things for so long. And I don't want to live on autopilot. I really take that time to reflect and get out of the how this world kind of dictates us to be so fast paced and take a step back and really listen to myself and kind of try to get out of those external influences as well, like social media and things that convince you, you need things and want things that you don't really need or want. And so it's just spending a lot of time with myself, honestly, and being okay with that and being good, being alone and being in nature, because I think that's our deepest connection to the universe is in nature. And we don't, usually get enough of it. So that's what I've been doing this year. 
Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. With the chanting, is that more something that comes from practicing one of the limbs of yoga or is that for from your Buddhism or it's not from either? Both. Um, I've been trying to learn more about Buddhism. I converted last year to Buddhism early last year and really there's so much in Buddhism. Like I could study it every single day for a year and still wouldn't know everything. But this year I wanted to learn about different traditions because I've been going to a Theravada temple where I live, which is very traditional. So I learned about different types, one called Nisi Ren Buddhism, where they chant every day. It's the Lotus Sutra. And it's basically, we are all Buddhas. We all can become Buddhas. We are all Buddhas. Buddha was not a God. He's just a normal person that somehow eliminated all of the attachment and desire and then was able to become enlightened. And these particular Buddhists believe deep down that we all have that ability. So I've been chanting that every day for a few months, the Lotus Sutra. And it really just helps. A lot of people swear by it and they say it really helps you cultivate whatever you want in your life and whatever you need. And to me, it really, it's in a different language. I was going to ask that. Does it matter if you do these chants in English or English isn't as effective? English is not as effective and usually chants like in yoga and everything there in Sanskrit. The original language of Buddhism is Pali, but then Pali has died. So they change it to Sanskrit mm-hmm. and now translated the text into English. But you don't chant in English because it's like a poem, taking a poem from one language to the other and directly translating it, it would be horrible. Like it wouldn't be beautiful. It wouldn't be poetic. And I have a whole book about how Sanskrit is... Sanskrit, I didn't believe this before I started chanting, but you don't even need to know what it means. It's it's like one of the few languages that the sounds itself has meaning without even knowing what the word actually means. So it feels it feels true. Like when you're in a yoga <laughs> class and you get a vibe, like even in Christianity, they say that if they're I think two or three people, maybe it has to be three people plus together kind of in a meditative state that you can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, which I take to mean that, you know, there's something in our consciousness that maybe is not inside the body, that's outside the body, and that it can connect to other people when you're in one room doing something kind of meditative. And I've really felt that in, there's this conference they have every year. It's not really a conference. I don't know what they call it, but it's Chant Lanta and it it's different people. It's like Kundalini people and people from other yogic traditions and meditators and everything, but they come together for three days. And it's like three days of chanting, but really, I don't want to say, but not the boring chanting. I mean, it's just a really <laughs> great experience, but the feeling in the room, it's it's undeniable that something happens. Exactly. I like, I didn't grow up religious or anything. I'm like the most skeptical person you'll probably ever meet. Um, I'm atheist, but I'm Buddhist. And last year really finding like the Buddhist community. And last year was when I started Kundalini as well. And at first I was so resistant to Kundalini. I had other experiences with it in Detroit that were not good. Mm. That was just very, I've had a lot of experiences that 
if, if you know what spiritual bypassing is, it's basically when you use spirituality as a shield or a crutch or whatever you want to call it to not really be a good person, but to oh. parade that you're being a good person. So a lot of white people in this community, you know, I'm all spiritual, I do this. And it's like, well, what's really going on behind the scenes? It's some very bad stuff. Mm. So I've had a lot of experiences like that. So I'm just very skeptical and hesitant. And I know I can do my own yoga at home. So I'm like, why am I going to go out, have a bad experience and pay people? And um, I was very resistant to it. But then I ultimately found this amazing black Kundalini teacher in Metro Detroit and she changed my life, honestly. And it's, it's about more than just her teaching. She's a nurse. She does holistic health stuff and she's just the most caring person I've ever met. She's invested in everyone's well-being. People would go in there with problems in their life and crying during class. And she's like there for them. It's really like you're being cradled during the class. And after class, we'd talk for like an hour and a half every time. Like she's yeah, awesome. Man. But it was, yeah, getting used to the chanting and the just a lot of weird stuff in Kundalini. You're rolling around on the ground, like making weird noises. And yeah, that's was kind like, of a major leap <laughs> for anybody, I think, who's from the West, but even more for an atheist. Were you raised as an atheist or that's something that came, it started to resonate with you as you came into adulthood? Yeah, no, I wasn't raised with religion at all, but my parents believed in God and they didn't try to force my sister and I to believe, but my grandmas did. And mm. I knew, I, I don't say I knew from a young age I was queer, but I knew I was like an advocate for queer people, but I was just like, I'm an ally. I'm a really strong ally, you know? And I just get personally offended when people don't like that. <laughs> That's so funny because that is like a recurring theme of the early stages of people starting to realize, oh, I'm actually part of the group. I'm not a bystander. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get personally offended when, you know, when people are oppress any marginalized group, but yeah, it was definitely a thing, something I had to awaken to. And I think when you're younger, it kind of just like, I love this community. You know, I'm just a willful participant, but my grandma's tried to force religion on me. And weirdest story ever, my grandma like told me when we were getting fast food when we were younger, like in the restaurant, like you're going to hell if you don't believe in God. He's not going to save you. While you're trying to like eat your lunch. Yeah. And I was like, can I just eat my French fries, please? Like, I really. I Wait, how know. old were you when she's like, by the way, you're going to hell if. Probably like 10. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I was like, but I'm a good person, grandma. And I had like a Hindu best friend at the time. And I was like, do you think my best friend is going to hell? Because she believes in many gods. She's like, I can't say for sure, but. and that probably was like so progressive and generous of her for her to even say she wasn't sure she's from the south too she's a white lady from the south so don't even get me started but and then she gave us like these teen bibles and i was like oh progressive teen bibles and i decided to look through it and it was questions like asking god questions like teens writing to god And it was asking about gay people, like, are they really going to hell? And the answer was, God does not save people who live alternative lifestyles. Wow. That was their teen Bible, the progressive one. Sweet. Yeah. And I threw it down and I 
I said, nope. But I didn't decide in that moment I was atheist. It's just that I came to an awakening probably last year as well that I had only ever believed out of fear. And I only ever prayed when I was scared something bad would happen in my life. And I don't like that kind of relationship where it's just like, I'm dependent on you and I'm afraid of you. And I know that's what they teach people is to fear God. And I never wanted that kind of relationship with this being that's supposed to love me, you know? And I just never really believed truly. I just went along with it. And so I finally was not afraid to tell people I'm atheist. I thought if I said it before, like a lightning bolt was going to come out of the sky and kill me (laughs) on the spot. And then, you know, I came out with it. I wrote about it. I wrote poems about it. And my family and friends found out and literally nothing happened. So... That is amazing (laughs) because I think that that fear is so real of your family rejecting you when they find out who you really are as an adult and for nothing to have happened. That's just, that's mind boggling to me because there's no way to know which way it will go. Were you really shocked that they weren't like, we're never speaking to you again, like until you repent or whatever you're supposed to do or. Um, I mean, I don't know if my grandma's know I'm atheist, so that's like, you know, they're old, so I don't want to like give them a heart attack. But <laughs> my parents, we've always had a very, I don't know, casual relationship, I guess. I'm always throwing curveballs at them in life. So I've done a lot of traveling when I was young on my own. I've been involved in a lot of social justice issues and activism. And, you know, I don't think anything I could do could really surprise them as long as it's something I really believe in. So I think they learned pretty early on that I was going to be like that. They believe in God. I think they're probably disappointed, but I think they just want what's best for me. And they see that I'm a good person and Buddhism. I'd be a good person without Buddhism, but Buddhism is just that extra, you know, propellant of like daily practices that give my life more meaning. But I don't believe that you need religion to be a good person. I think that's kind of sad that you need like the fear of going to hell to like do the right thing but I guess it gets people to do the right thing (laughs) oh but does it I I don't think it actually works unfortunately it's funny I heard someone say I can't even remember who it was but I thought this was an interesting framing that there's a right religion for everybody but it's not the same So it depends on the person. And it feels like it's true because you meet people in all kinds of different religions who really are just so, so good. They're like the ideal example of what that religion can do. But then they're like surrounded by terrible people. (laughs) So it seems to just depend. There are people in every group who seem to really allow it to help them evolve. And it doesn't work on everyone in any organized religion. I have trouble with it because I feel like I was raised in a cult. My family still doesn't call it that. But when you look at the definition of a cult, it's it's not looking good, right? So very controlling, extremely homophobic, really full of white supremacy, which is like, (laughs) it's sad on another level. But if you were raised in the 60s, then your standards for what is good behavior for a white person is pretty skewed. So because these people weren't like 
hateful and dangerous, they seemed okay, even though all their depictions of angelic creatures were white and blonde. And Judas was always depicted as a brown person. And that was like literally the only brown person in any of their illustrations. But the damage that I know so many people have experienced from being raised in that environment, I understand why a lot of people just don't deal in uh, organized religion of any kind and prefer to look at spirituality as a solo activity. Yeah, I totally understand that. And I think even in the atheist community, a lot of people would be like, oh, you're not atheist because you're Buddhist or something. Because a lot of atheists think like you shouldn't believe in anything. And it's just, I don't know how you, you don't believe in anything. But to me, I don't really care what people believe in as long as it makes them a good person but you're right unfortunately mostly western religion has just been used as a tool to oppress people and I've had you know my friend grew up catholic and she finally has not to her family because she would be ostracized and um, kicked out of her family but she's finally not catholic anymore but she's believes in god christian whatever because she herself is queer and I've seen her evolution too when we were we've been friends for like 10 years or something and I used to think she was homophobic before I ever knew she was queer before she ever knew I was Mm. queer and she said to me one time I don't think that gay people are wrong but my church tells me so so I don't know what to believe and I was like are you hearing yourself right now (laughs) like you don't think it's wrong but this obscure organization like what authority do they have you know and that's when I think it really hit her I need to reevaluate my relationship to the church and her family because it's painful to realize that the people around you reinforce problematic things because I've had to do that with my own family it's painful but it's you need to do it it's essential and a lot of people unfortunately especially queer folks have to leave their families because they just can't find that acceptance. I could not live with my close family being closed-minded or hateful like that. Yeah. And I'm lucky that they're they're not really like openly like supportive or allies most of the time, but they're really just neutral, I guess. But I know the reality is a lot of people have to live in secret, like my friend. Um, you know, at least she found it within hers to come to her truth and tell me about it and tell other like her friends about it, but the fact that she'll never be able to tell her family about that. Um, but yeah, unfortunately I know a lot of people have fraught relationships with religion and I was so hesitant, hesitant even to get into Buddhism at first because I don't know. I'm still unclear. Is it a religion? Is it a lifestyle? I don't know what it is, but I always thought, well, a super fundamentalist, cult (laughs) upbringing always informed it always was presented as a philosophy and you don't have to believe in a deity to be a buddhist and a lot of buddhists do not and Mm -hmm. i mean they gave us such limited information so i thought that a lot of buddhists were atheists but it's takes so long to untangle the misinformation of your childhood. And sometimes you have so many other things to focus on, like working on your internalized homophobia and working on your internalized white supremacy that you may not get to all the other bogus stuff you were told. So 
yeah, I don't know. How did you decide which branch of Buddhism resonated with you the most? Or was it based on what was there? I still don't really have one. Um, And I, it's weird. And I don't know, being a white Buddhist, it's just like, I don't want to step on any toes, but it's really what I believe in. And I, I can recognize that there are a lot of people that appropriate Buddhism and yoga, but they don't actually practice or they don't study or believe in it. And I think that that does do a lot of harm. And I listen to people of Asian cultures when they say, you know, don't do these things. You're not supposed to get a tattoo of the Buddha, things like that. Going to yoga studios that have a Buddha head in the bathroom. That is so disrespectful. Like I, I would know how to do that, but I am a practicing Buddhist. I don't have a particular branch yet. I go to whatever temple is close to me that's welcoming and Buddhists are extremely welcoming most of the time. Even Theravada is like the old school, like the monks aren't allowed to like touch women or anything like that. Um, Zen, they don't even have female monks, but in Zen, that's like the newer, cooler, more progressive one. They have like female monks and everything. I've been to Zen temples. I've been to Theravada. Now I'm starting to get into Nisi Ran Buddhism, which has a complicated reputation. There's a lot of, you know, I was really ignorant at first too. I thought, oh, Buddhism, peaceful, it's progressive, no controversy. Nope. Yeah, there's a lot of problematic little sectors in Buddhism and a lot Mm of cult-like behavior and a lot of corruption and political things. Um, But I'm aware of all that. I do as much research as I can. I take online classes and I'm I'm really more secular, I guess. Uh, I study it all. I like to read about reincarnation and karma and all of that, and I embrace it, but I'm really more secular, but I lately I've been also having issues with that community because the secular Buddhist community, it's mostly white people that don't even want to like read any of the sutras, which to me makes no sense. Like, how could you call yourself a Buddhist if you don't know anything the Buddha actually said? Well, yeah, that's very so. strange. Well, that just seems so strange. Why do you have interest in that label, but you don't have interest in reading the sutras? That is weird. Exactly. And it's been difficult too, because even every time this happens, you know, this happens to me throughout my life and many different things. But every time I think I find a community, turns mm-hmm. out I don't have a community because those people, they, you know, they want to embrace some problematic things. They don't want to stand up for what's right. and that's pretty much it but ultimately i'm always the one that rocks the boat and is like wait wait, wait. i thought we were all kind of on the same page and it turns out we're yeah. not so i don't really have a community and that's something that i really would like to find maybe i could connect with other queer buddhists because i know there's a lot of them um but maybe that would be something difficult. you have to create too because then you can create those guidelines and then basically if people aren't getting it they have to go yeah I I would definitely be interested in that it still always gets difficult because people because people have fraught relationships with religion I think they don't want to get too deep into religion but you have to understand that Buddhism is a religion to most Asian Buddhists So if you're a white person, you're like, it's just a lifestyle to me. And it's not a religion at all. You're kind of like stripping it. It's same with yoga. If you're like, I just do yoga to work out. Like, okay, it's your life. I can't tell you what to do with your life. But if you tell like an actual yogini that, that's pretty offensive because they live their whole life doing yoga. 
And so it's just, for me, I'm always just trying to be aware of the history and the culture and honoring it. Even if you don't agree with everything or embrace everything, you just got to know. And I don't think it's right to strip it all of what it truly means because what we're basically doing is just appropriating it. And, you know, like white people always do, just changing it into something that it was not originally and then making and money really off of taking it too. all of the, yes. And removing all of the detail and the nuance and the character and the flavor. It's very strange how consistently flat the westernized version of everything is and it's always related to hierarchy we find a way to impose hierarchy if it didn't already have it and to turn it into some sort of money-making machine exactly and it it essentially is meaningless because i just i don't really understand why you embrace something a lot of it's for money a lot of it's for appearance it's really difficult and complicated because it's it a lot of people in the beginning, I was learning about Buddhism. I don't even know who I was learning about it from. I was just reading whatever books I could find. I don't know. I'm sure most of them were written by white people. And it's like, okay, yeah, some of them just write unbiased, but then, well, I guess that's not true because what I've recently learned and trying to learn and practice more is realizing that, you know, every time something is through a white lens, it's not, that's from another culture. It's, being misconstrued in some way or the other and so but in the beginning I really had no knowledge or didn't really know better in terms of where to get my information from I was watching all these secular Buddhist videos on YouTube from this white guy but I kind of thought like something's missing here and I don't want to be that white Buddhist that only knows other white Buddhists and but it's also like difficult because then you don't want to just engage with Asian Buddhists just to use them to get some mm, original, yeah. you know, information. So the Buddhist community is very diverse, but I knew a little bit in that I really wanted to engage with people that were actually trying to study and learn and honor the history and not just taking the whole, like mindfulness has really become like this whole buzzword and it's, like everyone thinks they know what mindfulness is. And I mean, you can practice mindfulness and not be Buddhist, but I think having the Buddhist knowledge makes it a lot more meaningful. And so I really, in the past probably two years now, I've been trying to get more diverse sources of information. And that's why I took a class to actually learn from the sutras because there's so many sutras and they're in other languages. And so even knowing that reading the translated version is losing some of the meaning, but I still had to do it because now I have a lot, just broader range of knowledge and deeper meaning to why I actually am Buddhist and just reaffirming more. But yeah, I had to seek those, you know, other spaces that weren't just white spaces, but it's hard because most of them are. And like you said, I could really kind of cultivate a space that, is not just white dominated and only taking from like white Buddhists. So that's definitely something to think about. I mean, it's really tricky when it comes to, I thought about that too, when I decided the fundamentalist Christian box was not going to work for me. And I started looking at other options. I always was drawn toward spiritism and 
things that don't have too much ritual though, where you can just wing it and there's no way to do it wrong. That resonates yes, with me. I agree. <laughs> and when I was studying Buddhism, I was like, oh, there's so many. Essentially, I'm like, there's still so many scriptures to read. I'm like, do I want to do that again? Because as a kid, I had to do like daily Bible reading and I'm like, ah, it's so much work. So I've just been keeping it really loose around that. And I have that trauma around community too, of thinking that everyone's on the same page. Because one really common thing I've noticed in controlling sex is that people are not allowed to express their individual views. And so everyone's under this illusion that everybody's on the same page. And mm -hmm. like, they just believe everything that comes from the pulpit, because whenever you don't agree, you don't say anything. And after being raised that way, that's totally an illusion because there's, it's the hardest thing in the world is getting the same page with a group of people. Like it's, it feels like it's impossible, but maybe if you have like a clear mission that everybody resonates with, there's room for people to be a little different. Like you, the values that you have set up in your yogi group, I think are really clear. Like I would think it draws people who at least have the same vibe, even though we can't ever agree on everything in a group. Oh, that was one of the biggest lessons I learned from that um, little experiment of mine before the pandemic is that I really had a very utopic idea of what any group is going to be like. And that was my uh, naiveness then is thinking that queer yoga engaging with social activists we're all going to be progressive we're all going to be cool but like no one is fully formed no one is free mm -hmm. of any you know like no one is not problematic in any way and so I was thinking that perfect human beings are going to show up to do yoga in a perfect way and <laughs> no there was conflict and there were issues and there was not you know, all on me, but just having different people come together, even people that on paper look super similar, it's not similar at all. And even engaging with those spaces, these activist spaces and these progressive spaces has been a big lesson for me because it's good. I don't want everyone to think the same because I've had some really important conversations that I'm a very confrontational person. So I want to talk out things and I will straight up bring up like any social issue when people think it's awkward to do so, I will bring it up because I want to talk about it. And I've gained a lot of perspective and I'm not right. I'm always just reading books, you know, studying information from people that have gone through experiences and kind of relaying that information. But other people have read other books and watched other documentaries. And so I really always just want to have that conversation, spark new ideas. So I really had to dive into that whole confrontational thing because it's easy to practice with people, you know, but then when it's people you don't know, it's, you know, a little scary at uh, first, but now I'm like, I'm ready. Like, bring it on. I'm ready for the next group <laughs> where people are button heads because I think everyone learns from it and you can't expect peace and harmony because it's really, like you said, no one's speaking up. No one's expressing their views. And I want to know, like, maybe neither of us are right, but maybe both of us have some glimmer of truth, even when it comes to like religion per se, like, I don't believe in Christianity or Catholicism, but sometimes if I step out of my judgment and my personal negative beliefs about those faiths, and I talk to my friends who are Christian, 
they'll say something that I'm like, oh, that kind of relates to Buddhism. That kind of just gave me a new perspective. And actually, in some of the classes I've taken, they compare Buddhism to other faiths, including Islam and Christianity. And it really opened my eyes because at first I was super resistant, like, don't even really Christianity. I'm like, I have this negative connotation, but it's like, that's judgment. Buddhism, you're not supposed to be judgmental like that. You're supposed to take what's good from something and leave the bad. And so that's really what I've been trying to do in every space. And just be a better Buddhist, be a better human and not pass that judgment and take the lessons that I can by diving fully in, not just partially. So there's no, you know, real risk. Mm. That takes a lot of bravery. Is that just how you were born or is that something you cultivated? Pretty much. I've always been very combative and confrontational, always rocked the boat ever since I was a kid. I was always told to shut up and stop asking questions. And But I like who I am and I like that I am doing that more often because I know when you get older, people that are older than you try to convince you that you shouldn't be that way. You're always causing issues and it always gets somehow turned around on you that you're bringing up something important. But I've really had to just have really thick skin and realize that I have a lot of privilege and I really need to speak up for people that don't have it and put my personal feelings to the wayside because, you know, I've had to have those difficult conversations with friends and family members and they've really learned from it. And I've learned from a lot of other people. You know, everyone's at a different point in their journey is my kind of perspective. And if I can help someone move along, they can help me move along. I think it's worth the risk. I think that people with privilege have to be willing to risk their comfort and their relationships to bring about some meaning and some something that needs to be said in the world. Yeah, that definitely resonates with me because I keep seeing people prioritizing their comfort over the lives of other people. Sometimes not speaking up, the damage that occurs when you don't say anything is massive. Our feelings are important, but not more important than an actual life. Exactly. And we can all hold ourselves accountable and do a lot more. And I know I can do a lot more as well, but really where I'm starting at is speaking out and trying to be vocal in those day-to-day situations because I think a revolution is coming and I just want to prepare people to be ready to join and know why they're joining. So I'm like, I got to get the people around me to that point to understand, you know, one of the inevitably happens. (laughs) I love that. I do feel like things are shifting and even For me, I keep seeing in the people around me, especially with the pandemic, it feels like this has been a major catalyst for growth for a lot of people because we've had more time in silence than we usually do. And especially for those of us who've never been able to make space for meditation practice, you don't get a lot of time to really reflect on whether or not your choices are consistent with who you imagine yourself to be. And I've been making a lot of changes and a lot of shifts to either welcome people in to being ready for the revolution or to welcome them, you know, to show them the door. Like you don't get to be (laughs) a major character in my life if you're homophobic or if you 
don't like black people. It is insane how many people who don't like black people still befriend black people. Like, it's really annoying. I'm like, uh, no, I'm not a special one. I'm not a token. I'm not a good one. I really want you to stay away from me because all of your microaggressions that you think are compliments are toxic. And like, I literally have no time for this, but I was allowing those type of people in my space. And I have very low standards for who I was allowing into my circle and this has just completely woken me up to not only like what a waste of time that is and how toxic it is, there's no joy in that. And when you put yourself out there and you present your full self, that is when people who are similar to you are finally drawn to you. But if you never say anything that you imagine is going to be controversial, then how will people really know who you are? Like, how are you going to draw your actual people to you? Yeah, exactly. And I've come to terms with the fact that I'm just myself all the time, always. And if that scares people off, then like, I never wanted to be friends with those people in the first place. So I don't, I'm, I don't believe I need to be friends with everyone, but I do believe that it is beneficial to try to interact with as many people as possible. Even if you will never be friends with them, you don't like them, you think they're a terrible person, you can still maybe impart some information on them if you have more information um, than they do in an area. And I really learned that a lot of uh, animal rights activism I did um, all throughout college, interacting with a lot of different people that were sometimes violent, sometimes mm. extremely defensive and screaming and cussing me out over giving them a leaflet about vegan food. So that's... I will, ne <laughs> will never understand that reaction. <laughs> well, I guess sometimes people it feel was... like you are condemning them when you show them what you've chosen to do. And if they have some conflicted feelings over it, then they get so upset seeing like, oh, it actually can be done. Like you said, it was too inconvenient or it was whatever you came up with. And now you see somebody doing it and it, you take it as a personal attack, but they literally don't know you. So this pamphlet is not about you. Like this is, this is not a personal attack. And that's how people react to all social justice issues is I always try to tie back to my spirituality. It's always an ego thing. Mm -hmm. It's always, I'm not like that. I'm not a bad person. I don't do bad things. First of all, you got to realize right off the bat, you do bad things. We all do. And you have to be accountable for them. And it doesn't matter if you're a good or bad person. I'm not God if God exists. I'm not chalking it up. Tell me all the good things and bad things you've done. We can all improve. And that's the problem with any social justice issue is that it's always defensiveness and ego that gets in the way. And that's the first thing when I'm talking to someone, I hear their defensiveness. If I, if I feel comfortable enough with them that they're not going to literally attack me because a lot of people were actually in that space. Um, that will say like, what's getting in the way here though? I didn't attack you. I'm giving you information. I wish someone gave me this information, any inform, any new information to become a better person. I wish I had gotten that years ago. I, yeah, I have a lot of grief over those years. I spent doing problematic things and harming the world and harming others, but I got that information. I want to be that catalyst for you if I can be. So I'm just here imparting information on you without judgment. But I think it's because deep down people know they're doing something wrong. 
that they become defensive and pin it around on you. And I had to work through a lot of that, like that experience of doing so much activism has now guided me in my entire life and guided me in every other activism type situation or just imparting information on others where, and I've gotten everything. I've gotten cussed at, I've gotten stuff thrown at me and nearly attacked by drunk men over these things. And I know there's people a lot worse out there, a lot more violent, especially when it comes to dismantling white supremacy. It can be a very dangerous space to be in, but I'm willing to risk my life. Honestly, I'm willing to risk everything for what I believe is right, because that's the only reason I really, you know, get out of bed is to make my life mean something. And just knowing that it is ego and defensiveness kind of gives me hope because I think that is something we can break through. And that's like the goal of Buddhism and a lot of spirituality in general is to just break through the ego not be living out your ego because there's something deep down. Um, Ram Das, who was like a great inspiration to me who died last year. He said that at the end of his life, he knew he was dying. And he said that I've already been somebody. My goal now is to become nobody. We should all practice becoming nobody because it doesn't matter your name. Like, yeah, of course who you are matters. Everyone's a person that has value and matters, but really I see this whole life is an energy thing and what does your life really stand for what are you leaving behind when you die it's not your name and your accolades it's not even your relationships really that's all just kind of a metaphor for the energy that you're leaving and whether you're contributing more positive or negative energy and I think a lot of people they're not at that point yet of realizing and if they were this whole thing would be a lot easier getting them to being on the revolution and everything, but knowing that gives me a little hope because I'm like, okay, I don't think you're a fundamentally bad person. You just have a wall that we need to get through. And I'm willing to try to get through that with you. That sounds like a really healthy way to look at it because I know it's so, so draining for people to be trying to push for change and coming up against so much resistance when they believe that what they're coming up against is like people who can't be helped or can't be saved. So I definitely like that framing a lot better. Yeah. I think there's some bad people out there, but I think I've been listening to a lot of people that are uh, a lot of people of color and activists that are really leading the revolution and hopefully turning this whole country on its head saying that, there are more of us than there are of them. Like for the revolution, there are more people I think that are neutral that we can get to be active. Hopefully when I was doing animal rights activism, they told us to go for the low hanging fruit instead of going for like a hunter and a fisher and the guy that has like a dead deer in the back of his car right now. That might be a little touchy subject at the moment. And I actually did used to go up to people when they were eating animals and talk to them because I thought it was kind of funny. (laughs) They would get really uncomfortable and they would like, like stop chewing. I'm like, I used to eat animals too. Like, it's okay. I was in your place a few years ago. I'm not judging you. Like they would literally get so like, they feel so bad. I'm like, I've seen dead animals before. Like, I, okay. But, um, yeah, go for the low hanging fruit is like the, I mean, I want to go for everyone, but 
you gotta, like you said, your energy can only be expended doing so much. And then you have to care for yourself so that you can continue to be an activist. But I think there are a lot of people that are, can be easily convinced that are well-meaning people that are just ignorant and there's no excuse for ignorance these days, but Hey, you know, if you're privileged, you have the time and the resources and the energy that you should expend on educating others. And that's really what I've been trying to do is to reach those people that good intentions, but probably misguided. And that's been me too. And that can still be me right now, but I'm continuing to learn and just got to get people on the conveyor belt so you can kind of, you know, get in the movement with the rest of us. Exactly. Oh, I love that. And yeah, it's so true. We're all still making mistakes. Like I was listening back to an interview that I did a couple of weeks ago. And at some point in the interview, I said something about normal people, meaning (laughs) white straight people. And I'm like, where did that come from? Oh, that's my internalized white supremacy and hetero supremacy where I still think that's the default, even though a huge part of my mission is dismantling that, but it's still there. So, and I thought, oh, I should go back and delete that. But I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to leave it. Just that's my being transparent that it is a process. You can even be to the point where you want to dismantle all systems of oppression and still have manifestations of all of that being inside of you because we've just been steeped in this white supremacist racist soup that is America for so long. Of course, we've all been contaminated, even when it works against you, which is what's so bizarre. Like when I heard myself say that, I was like, what the hell is that? Where did that even come from? And as I said it, I didn't hear it. I only heard it when I played it back and I was like, oh, that's... That's not good. <laughs> yeah, uh, that makes me a little sad. But people, you know, don't act in their own self-interest all the time. And like you said, I like your metaphor, but n- no one is immune to it. Unfortunately, like internalized, everything exists. And that's the saddest thing ever to me is like teaching people to hate themselves. But mm. we that's the biggest problem I think a lot of people are seeing right now. I'm just reflecting the thoughts of a lot of black activists that I follow, but that white people still aren't learning in this moment that we're having all of these protests and everything these past few months, because there's all these books and workbooks and all of these things coming out that really, that really frame white supremacy as like an individual problem instead of like a systemic Systemic. problem. And it is like, I believe, or I've learned from black activists that you should always turn it back on you. Like, well, what am I doing? Like I could go out and be like, this is white supremacy. This is white supremacy, but always be pointing the finger and never be evaluating how I'm practicing it because I still Mm. am because I'm not immune and I'm white. So I'm like literally super in it and, you know, digging yourself entirely out is like impossible, I think, but being aware is the most important thing, but it's, realizing that it is a system and it's never going to really be gone. Like every white person could do a white supremacy workbook, 
you'd still have white supremacy. Yeah, I don't so. think a workbook <laughs> is going to solve like a whole lifetime of conditioning. It's definitely better than nothing. But I like the idea of giving yourself some grace, knowing that it's a process. It isn't this fixed goal we're trying to get to, where at the end of the class, you're like, oh, I am officially liberated from all of this conditioning. It's not going to happen. We have to keep revisiting it. It's a practice. And having shame every time you reveal that you've got an issue still isn't helpful and hiding it isn't helpful. You have to own the mistake and be transparent so that other people can also see this is a process and you can't just say you're done at any point and say that, oh, I don't need for you to explain to me how what I just did is problematic because I took a class. Like I've literally had people say stuff like that to me like, oh, don't worry. I know all about black people. I've read a book. Oh, okay. No, that's not a thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's... Yeah, white people love to take the shortcut to everything. So they're like, read a book? Which one? Is it under 300 pages? I got you. Like, by next week, I will be racism free. And it it doesn't work that way because, you know, I really believe that this country has to fundamentally change. Like, we have to dismantle everything because when you have a country that was founded, not even just this country, but, like, mostly the world, like, Europe the UK, Australia, all of those countries that are also colonizing countries. We need these systems to fundamentally change because you can have all the well-meaning white people out there, but the government is still oppressing people every step of the way. I think that's the missing piece that people don't realize is they think that voting for the right person, if there is one, Mm. is their contribution rather than being invested in something other than the system that only functions for a very small amount of people. I mean, that's an excellent point because nine times out of 10, your option is patriarchy and more patriarchy. You can vote for the rapist or the other rapist. Like, exactly. not a whole lot of options out there. What would you say is the benefit for a person with privilege when it comes to looking at how you maybe have participated? Do you think part of becoming the best version of yourself is tied to that type of growth? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, like I said, I don't have really community anywhere because I find that most white people are not as invested And I also have OCD, so I'm like an obsessive person. So I like literally read, like at the beginning of this pandemic, I was listening to two to three podcasts a day on white supremacy, reading a book a week, all by black activists, because my whole thing is that, like I mentioned before, white people are always studying through a white lens. Mm -hmm. I don't want to read those white supremacy books that are written by white people. Because, yeah, you can get in a circle of your white friends and talk about what y'all need to do better. And I think that that's beneficial because I don't think that we should be infiltrating spaces where we can trigger people of color by talking about things that we've done and trying to, you know, bring our guilt onto the table. That doesn't do anything effectively. But 
me, I, I really want to learn from the people that are affected, like the most vulnerable, basically. So I've been trying to read a lot from black trans folks and black folks with disabilities. And I've gained so many new perspectives from a lot of like radical political groups and everything. And that's so important. I think my view of life is a lot more intense, I think, than most people's is that it's really just to live to serve the world, which is why I'm so oriented to health and fitness, because I think that you can show up best in the world when you're you're healthiest, mentally, physically, spiritually, whatever that means to you, yoga, meditation, fitness, eating good. There's all basic things we all should be doing. And I think that just seeing in my own life, seeing people around me that don't take care of themselves, they don't really show up in the world because they don't show up for themselves. So how can you expect, you know, this person to be available, be present or be active for anything when they can't even do that for themselves? And I'm not blaming them or guilting them, but I think that's my whole perspective in my health and fitness business is that I want to inspire and motivate people to be them best, their best selves so that they can show up in the world the best to serve others. That's really the ultimate mm. goal. Because I believe that your life is about more than just you. And especially when you live with a certain amount of privilege and you don't have to just focus on survival every day. If you have survival already guaranteed, you're already ahead of so many people. And so I mm. have all this extra energy that I think is really important. I think people... White people and people with privilege in any way need to hold themselves accountable to showing up and learning, just learning more to start there. If you don't know what to do, just learn because there's so much history they don't teach you in school. It's not yeah. on Netflix even because Netflix has their own agenda. Like we think that it's this whole liberal thing like, oh, they put the good stuff on there. And like, no, they don't. Like you really got to like look for like the undercover stuff. Like, <laughs> stuff that nobody would pay for and nobody wanted to be associated with. <laughs> yeah, it's like definitely more perspectives out there that we can get into. I love how intersectional you are. And that's something that I do think everybody can work on. And privilege could mean, like you said, you've gotten at least beyond worrying about shelter, food, and basic safety, you could probably be doing more for another group of people who doesn't have the same level of access as you. And I see all the time where people who have a couple of marginalized identities are like, well, I don't have to do anything because people are giving me shit for being gay. So done. <laughs> like Intersectional, what's that? And a lot of Black people are crazy homophobic and they're in this mindset that because they're oppressed, they can't possibly be oppressing anyone else. And that's totally not how it works. And I like to hear that awareness from people. And I think that especially people in your age bracket, there seems to be more people who are getting it, that we have to be intersectional. And if you're worried about your own marginalized identities, you should be worried about all of the marginalized identities, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we can all recognize that we have some marginalized identity, but like, I know I have an immense amount of privilege, especially being bisexual. I've never been a victim of a hate crime. I've never, especially being a woman, it's a little bit more accepted. I am personally affected by homophobia and queer phobia and it hurts me, obviously, but you know, it's the whole straight passing thing, or if you're white passing, but right. you're from a country that 
the people were oppressed years ago. It, it gets interesting and complicated, but I listen when the most vulnerable people speak up. I listen and everyone should really just shut up and listen is like what I've learned and activists. I follow quotes, someone else, I can't remember who it was, but it's like center the most vulnerable. And that's really my whole perspective now is because if the most vulnerable people are safe, then no one else could be threatened. So Mm. if like black, trans, disabled, queer people are safe, how could a white queer woman be threatened? So it's like, that's why we need to center the most vulnerable because everything else will kind of fall into place because their lives are not valued. I'm honest about how I'm affected by oppression, but I really don't try to center my own experience because there's people that literally are just trying to survive and people should really put into perspective their own experiences. Yeah. That makes so much sense. That really resonates letting it sink in. Where can people find you and where do we find your show? My podcast, it's called Do Better Podcast. It's on Spotify and Stitcher and other things. You can find it on Facebook and my fitness and yoga and nutrition business is mary.fit. That's the website or at mary.fit on Instagram. Awesome. Is there anything that if you could just snap your fingers and everybody would instantly understand something, what would you offer everybody? It'd probably be what I iterated before that your health does matter. And a lot of people have a fraught relationship with fitness, which I understand I have personal experience with, but it does matter for more than just appearance. And to me, everything has to have an intrinsic reason, such as religion. Like everything we've talked about kind of ties in together, which is cool. It's gotta be an intrinsic motivation, not like you're going to hell or, you know, the whole fat phobia and toxic diet culture of like, I have to work out or I'm not gonna be attractive. Things like that that people internalize. It's gotta all be intrinsic. And once you develop that intrinsic motivation and tie that into your life purpose, and how you can serve others, I think you will develop the healthy habits. Develop that intrinsic motivation and purpose, and you really hone everything down and focus on that. You can cultivate those healthy habits and stick to them and just be the best person you can be. I love that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been awesome. What were your greatest takeaways from this episode? Feel free to reach out to Sarah and I on IG and let us know what those were. Sarah recently launched a new program, Liberated Fitness Playbook. This three-month coaching program is designed to help you heal your relationship to fitness and find a peaceful, self-loving approach to caring for your body. That link is in the show notes. Remember, the only fee for the show is that you share it with others. If you listen to the show on Spotify, it's very easy to share a podcast directly to your stories on IG. And of course, if you visit the podcast website, you'll see easily shared links there as well. Liking and reviewing the show and sharing episodes with others is a wonderful way to support the show and to help this message reach as many people as possible. Thank you so much for joining me. I will see you next time.